Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. We live in a fractured America. Entertainment and news are custom-tailored to our tastes and served up by the invisible hand of algorithms and AI. It's becoming increasingly rare for us to engage in any sort of shared cultural experience. But there's one institution that nearly every one of us has some degree of fond childhood connection to. Long ago, before your first breakup, before bills, before work and stress and cynicism about the world, we had the comforting, optimistic innocence of Sesame Street. It's an iconic show that crosses class and cultural boundaries. It's remained steadfast in its mission statement, not only to entertain, but to uplift, promote civic values, and to educate. This next guest has been at the helm of the show as music supervisor for over a decade. It's a unique job that entails a delicate collaboration between producers, educators, child psychologists, musicians, celebrities, and puppets. So how do you navigate staying true to the heritage of the show while modernizing it to keep it relevant for today's media-savvy audience? We'll find out as we sit down for a conversation with this accomplished maestro who's proficient in every musical style from jazz to hip-hop. Today, composer, songwriter, father, and the man trusted with the musical direction of one of our most cherished television productions, Mr. Bill Sherman. Bill Sherman! Thanks for sitting down, man. Thanks for finally making it happen. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. We've actually never met in person, so this is kind of a unique experience. You know? mm-hmm. um, well, I'm going to jump right in. I, I just sure. finally got a chance to watch uh, We Are Freestyle Love Supreme, and it's such a, it's a really heartfelt, it's such a wonderful movie. Um, for those of you that haven't had a chance to see it, it's available on Hulu. Let's get the plug right away in front, because mm-hmm. I, I think it's an important movie. Um, it's really, it's about a hip hop improv troupe, I guess you could say, but, but more importantly, I think it's about, it's about friendship and kinship and the sense of family that you guys have all created for each other. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, you know, the first time you actually got to sit down and watch the movie and, and see it presented on a screen, like what were your thoughts? What was going through your mind? I mean, that, that freestyle of Supreme in essence is such a journey to begin with that it's almost impossible to sort of articulate it. I will say that the first time that I saw it, I was at Sundance. And uh, the movie premiered at Sundance, and as many of us could be there, we were there. And, you know, watching my giant head on a big screen just, like, drop F-bombs every fourth word just seemed very, like, you know, surreal to me in every way. But it was also, you know, the way I look at it is Freestyle Love Supreme was, like, my 20s. Like, when we were when we were all of us, me and Lynn Miranda and, and Chris Jackson and blah, blah, we were all in our 20s, most of us. Uh, we would travel all the time and just do these shows and then have these, you know, like, other jobs to, like, get by. And so... It's funny when I look back on it, like, these are my 20s and these are my friends. And at the end of the day, it was always just like a bunch of friends in a room, like trying to make each other laugh. And if we could make each other laugh, then we were doing the right thing. And then if we could make five people laugh, cool. And if we make 10 people laugh, cooler and so on and so forth. And then, you know, 
we kept on touring and owning the craft and then and then you know then someone wanted to put us on broadway and someone would make a film about it it's very weird to see like younger me playing gigs and like also it's really fun to have my kids watch it because they're just like who is this person i've never seen before ever and and so that's a little surreal too and um yeah it's just like it's sort of having like a which i'm sure can be said about many documentaries it's like having a living breathing like um scrapbook of your you know of some of the stuff in your past so it's you know it's a super cool thing to watch and every once in a while somebody from where i live will just be like hey i saw your documentary because they have really have no idea that like that's a part of my life because i mostly just like write songs for sesame street and like do other kinds of stuff so that's just like this weird performance angle that i have and so um so yeah so it's a it's an unexpected thing that's you know just again was just a bunch of guys in a room trying to have some fun and now a bunch of people know about it, you know? So what was your, I'm a little confused. Like what, so in some of the scenes in the movie, you were on stage and some you weren't like, what was your, what's your actual role day to day throughout the years with those guys? For freestyle of Supreme, I'm, I'm in the group. So I play keyboards in the group. I mean, you know, when we've done television shows and other stuff, I've been like the music director, but for the most part, so the way it's set up is there's a beatboxer guy and there's two keyboard players. One guy plays like the bass and a keyboard and another guy plays another keyboard. So I usually play like the bass with my left hand and then another keyboard in my right hand. And then, uh, yeah, that's it. I, that's one thing, you know, I, when I was in college, I went to Wesleyan University in Connecticut. I was a saxophone player and I performed all the time. And then when I left college, I sort of abandoned performance. So having Freestyle of Supreme to be like a performance group is super fun. It's very odd that the one time I perform or the five times I perform a year are on like a Broadway stage in front of a bunch of people, which is super cool and i'm very lucky that that's my my you know my performance thing and it's very surreal still like just you know to to go to go outside after you know go to the backstage area and people are there and they're super into it and people have seen freestyle of supreme like 30 times i just think that's so wacky and weird and awesome and the good news about it for them is that you know the show is different every night so so at least they get something new and different for sure and do you feel in terms of a movie, it's always it's always dicey because there's, you know, there's arcs and narratives that need to be squeezed in or sometimes manufactured. Do, do you feel like it it got the themes right? Well, yeah, I think the interesting thing about that group is there's a thousand themes because it's all very specific, different people with all kinds of careers and things that have happened to them. I thought that the the so the director, this guy named Andrew Freed, who, uh, you know, in addition to doing that documentary, has done like Chef's Table and Cheer and a bunch of other things. And he has been a friend of ours for like 15 years or something crazy like that. Like he was at my wedding and he was uh, at Lynn, you know, when Lynn got married and all this stuff. And so he knows us really well. So I I feel like there's like a hundred stories he could have told. And like, this is just the one he decided to tell. And it seemed like where we are in our lives now, like the one that made the most sense. It's sort of about guys who are friends, who get older, whose lives change, who have kids and their lives change again. And then it's all in the shadow of like an unbelievable amount of success, which you can't really prepare yourself for at all as much as you would like to, in my opinion. And so and so watching what success does to all of those people and how they handle it and how some are more successful than others. And it creates this interesting dynamic. I think that's a very interesting part of that that thing for sure. I mean, could there be other there, are there other storylines? There are many, but uh, but that's the one that he took. So it's interesting because I was just about to get to you. Like one of the themes that I'm always fascinated with that I love to explore on this podcast is the politics of success and of fame. And, you know, for those of you that haven't seen the movie, one of the group members, one of the characters in the movie is Lin-Manuel Miranda. And you might recognize his name. He had a little sleeper play on Broadway called Hamilton a few years ago. And uh, it's become, you know, wildly successful. And I, I assume he's become, you know, wildly, wildly rich as well. And I'm curious, like, how has that affected your relationship with him or his relationship with the rest of the guys in the group. Cause you know, group dynamics are, it's such a fragile thing to begin with. And it's, it seems that such a dramatic shift in success 
like wouldn't have an effect on the fabric of that relationship? I think, well, it's a good question. So Lynn has been my very closest friend since we were in college. So since we were like 19 and we've been like kind of inseparable since then we were, we were roommates. We, we, he was at the birth of my kids and I was at the birth of his kids and he was the best man at my wedding and vice versa and all sort of stuff. And so we, uh, we sort of, him and I particularly, and also Tommy Kale, our director sort of grew up together in this sort of like, so success sort of came a little bit at the same time, like Lynn within the Heights and, 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 uh, that kind of stuff. And then, and then when he went on to astronomical stardom, I, to me, the only thing that's different is like, he's just harder to get in touch with because he's so busy. Um, he's always been, you know, <laughs> I don't know how to put it. He's always been this kind of same person who just, who, you know, is, uh, people are attracted to and people are interested in talking to, and he's very energetic and he's like, he's very easy to, to, to be friends with. And so, and so, you know, now it's just like you go out to dinner with him and people are asking for photos and autographs, which to this day is also like very surreal and hilarious because like, he's just like my bozo friend who like I hang out with and like, and like we like go out to dinner and get drunk and like hang out and like look at, he sends me pictures of his kids every morning and I send him pictures of my kids just to like stay in touch and see what's going on, you know, and stuff like that. And so, and so, you know, it, it, it's it just that part of it is very different. I don't think the, the wealth with him is, is I don't I personally don't think it's, you know, much of a thing. Like he's not a flashy guy. He's not a flashy dresser. He doesn't buy things. So, like, I think he what he does, which I think is very, you know, genuine is he donates a lot of his money and time to causes, including like the Hispanic Federation and all kinds of other stuff and the Biden campaign. And, and I think that that's, you know, that sort of keeps him grounded as well. And then the same thing with the other guys, I think, you know. We've all managed to find like little pockets of success that are based on this. Some some have gone on to like have, you know, Shockwave, the beatboxer guy. He's like a beatboxer. Like he makes money as a beatboxer. And, you know, um, and Utkarsh is, is a, you know, an actor. And David is an actor. And we all have this sort of central thing, this sort of like, I don't know, we all come back together to do this this rapping thing. So it's sort of fascinating, you know. It's it's interesting. I mean, the, some of the, throughout my career, the people that I've shot that have become or are really famous or successful, there seems to be like almost, it's a generalization, but it almost seems like there's two paths. Like either they become incredibly successful and famous and almost want to disavow their past and kind of reinvent themselves and surround themselves with people that are on their level of fame, or they consciously surround themselves with people that are grounding force that are, they have a shared experience that predates this, this large level of success. And it seems Mm -hmm. like you guys really adhere more to the latter aspect of that than, than to the first. I think for Lynn, we are that for sure. We're like the thing that like we were around before the success and the money when we like could barely eat dinner. And like we had like Lynn was a substitute teacher. I worked at Viacom in the computer tech department. Like we had all these ridiculous jobs and we could barely, you know, we lived in a $1,500 a month apartment in, in Inwood that was in Inwood at the top of New York. It was just yeah. like a total disaster. And, uh, uh, yeah. And, and I think that, you know, you have those shared experiences when you're not, when there's no success and you like grind and you like live in this sort of thing where you're all sort of pushing for this, this thing. And and I think that, 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 that's when those, the, the, the real bonds of of relationship can really be made. Cause like, that's when you really know the person, if you know them at their lowest, as they say, like you really know them. And I think that, 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 that is a really grounding force for all of us. And I, and, and I think we're lucky to have that because I don't know what it would be like if we did it. I mean, there's a great, I want to read a quote. There's a great scene in the movie where, where Lin-Manuel says, I knew who I was by the time that Hamilton came out. It's a lot harder when you get hit by that wave and you don't have your shit figured out. Yeah. And I think it seems like after watching this movie, I mean, not directly, but it seemed like he was indirectly referring to the camaraderie that you guys had. I mean, that kinship and the experiences um, 
it seems like a real contributing factor to him being secure in himself and not becoming this like ugly famous person. Is that, you think mm-hmm. that's a fair statement? I think that's an absolutely fair statement. And I will say this, when, when people ask me about like how was Lynn when we were in college, I say the same thing every time, which is he had this air about him and it wasn't, it's not arrogance. He just, he knew he was going to be this larger than life person, like forever. Like he just knew it. And so like, and he would say that. And if you asked him, he's like, Oh, I'm going to be this big deal. And you're like, shut up. Like, just come on. And then, and then he was right about it. And then it wound up like, it didn't feel like, like he was being patronizing or he was being like insincere. He was being super sincere. And you were just like, you're so full of shit. And then he, it just wound up happening. And so I felt like in some way he's like sort of been preparing himself for his whole life for this kind of stuff. And like, he just sort of fits well into this thing. And so ever since we were in college, he used to say that all the time. And so, you know, it's sort of, if you, I guess if he, if he wasn't famous, I'd be like, what happened? You know? But, so I guess that's, that's sort of like, <laughs> you talked a lot side. of shit, man. What happened? Yeah. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's some really interesting other arcs in this movie. I mean, Hamilton kind of plays a really key chapter in this movie in, you know, kind of the, the second, third act. And, you know, one member of the group moved to San Francisco for family reasons and kind of missed that chapter. And then another member was actually offered the role of Aaron Burr and basically lost it as a result of, you know, his drinking and personal problems. But what's really interesting is that the theme of, of regret and jealousy is not really prevalent in this film. Do you th- was that mm-hmm. downplayed or do you think that's sincere? Uh, I know. I mean, I feel like all members of that, of this group of free cell stream have some, some sort of regrets and jealousy. Like, how can you not, you know, when you have that amount of astronomical success, how can you not be like, Holy cow, where am I? Or like, what was my involvement? And I don't, I don't think that's particularly like, um, you know, focused on, but I, I you know, I think it, it, there's an underlying sense of that only because it's inevitable. I don't think that you can, you can psychologically distance yourself from something that's that meteoric without, yeah. you know, you, you can't, I mean, it's just, it's right. And it's right on top of you and it's right there. And you're just like, well, what's happening here? And da, 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 da. And it's always, and we joke about it. And I think that that's our way to sort of, you know, uh, uh, make each other feel okay about it. Yeah. I mean, you, I feel like you, it would be un self-reflective to not think about that at all. I mean, it, Absolutely. Um, but what if there was one really beautiful scene I thought, um, so UTK was one of the group members who was offered Aaron Burr's role and kind of, you know, essentially lost it because of his personal problems. And he speaks really candidly about it. And there was a great scene when somebody asked him, you know, why don't you drink? And his response is, um, have you ever heard of the play Hamilton? And I just thought <laughs> it was such a like beautiful way to turn a negative into a positive and you know the way he spoke of it being like a a north star in his life to mm-hmm. make him have a constant reminder of why he needs to stay on track and 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 keep his life you know away from alcohol that was a really beautiful scene in the movie yeah he's a really beautiful person ukarsh you know has had a lot of uh trials and tribulations in life and he's been able to sort of turn it he just had a baby you know like stuff like that and he and he, you know, he's always, he always comes out on the other side really well. And he went, he went through a lot of hard times. Like we knew him definitely during those, the bottom times. But yeah, the, the thing with Hamilton, I was, I wasn't around for that, but I know that, that, yeah, he, that he sort of like played himself out of the role and it just wasn't the right time for him. And I think, I think, you know, I think part of him is shooting himself in the foot for having lost such an amazing opportunity. And then part of him is just like very happy that he didn't because it led to other things. And he's like a very successful movie career and he has one, you know, he, he wouldn't have gone to. Where'd he go? To go, he went to shoot Mulan and he met his wife there and now he has a kid, you know, like then that wouldn't have happened. So, you know, it's hard yeah. to, you can weigh all of those things against each other and it's still sort of like, this is what happened. So here we go. 
Yeah, no, he just seemed to deal with it really healthily because it could easily have just been like that Absolutely. one thing that you wake up in cold sweats for the rest of your life. You know, you hear stories about the you know athletes that let a, a ground yeah. ball go between their legs in the ninth inning and they just like it haunts them. You know, Bill Buckner, the Bill Buckner. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. Um, so I'll switch gears for a second. What tell me what's your what was your relationship with Sesame Street growing up? Were you, were you a fan? Did you grow up on Sesame Street? You know, people ask me that a lot now that I've been there for like 10 years. And the answer, the immediate answer to that question is I did, but I like didn't, it wasn't at a time where I grasped it fully. Like I was like a GI Joe transformers, like He-Man kind of kid for sure. And so now, you know, now that I've worked there and people always corner me, they're like, remember when, uh, Snuffleupagus was a a imaginary friend and blah, blah, blah. And and the answers to questions are no, but like now having gone back and sort of researched these things and like have a good answer for them, like, yes, now the answer is yes. And like, you know, musically speaking, you have to go back and sort of mine the, the treasure chest from time to time when people want certain things, certain songs, certain vibes or whatever. And so like, I've become definitely more familiar with it, but you know, I, I didn't, I didn't have an immediate relationship to Sesame Street, but now it's, you know, it's like this humongous major part of my life. And so I've sort of grown into it, as it were. And I think Sesame Street sort of grown into me at the same time. We sort of have, you know, become friends. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I I originally got the job at the electric company when they were rebooting the electric company right after we started making In the Heights. And I'd also not seen the electric company because it was in the 70s, which is before my time. But, uh, you know, I started watching the show and then we, we made the electric company. It was very exciting. It was my first TV gig and all this stuff. And then at the, at, at around the time that that was ending, Sesame street was sort of, uh, revamping. And so I, you know, I went to like a year and a half of interviews there and then I was really young. I was like 28 or something. And then I finally got the job there and I was like, you know, I came home and I was like, I think I'm going to be the music director of Sesame street. Like, is that even like a real sentence that can be yeah. in the world? And, and my wife at the time, she was like, it's the, craziest thing I've ever heard in my life. And I was like, I know it's just the nuttiest. And so there I was, and, and I've been there ever since. And it's, you know, I, prior to that, I hadn't held a job for like 10 days. And so I've been there for like 10 years. So it's pretty surreal and wild. And, you know, it's, I, it's, it's still pretty unbelievable to say that that's a job. It's like the most fun, crazy thing ever. And it's so. such a, it's such an iconic property. It's such an iconic piece of, of American culture. I mean, so was it intimidating to, to have to take over that mantle? I mean, I mean, did you show up on the first day? Was there like a, a sealed envelope in the desk from your predecessor, like what presidents do? I mean, how? I mean, it felt like that. It was terrifying. So the guy I took over for had been there since 1969. So he was like 80 something years old. And so he he's like this legend. His name is Danny Epstein, like one of the great music supervisors of all time. And so like I would find like pieces of paper in his in the desk that used to be his, but like nothing, nothing like uh, that he was handing over to me at all. But um. But yeah, it was just like the, the, when I took the job, I was like, you know, I feel like Sesame Street's sort of been doing the, you know, been treading water a little bit for the last little bit. If I'm going to do it, I'm going to like really do it. I'm going to rip off the bandaid. I'm going to revamp the whole thing. So I, I, you know, I rehired all new staff and I just did everything differently. And it took like it was a few years of like sort of, um, you know, ingratiating myself in there. But now, you know, we've set up a new system. It's very like from recording to composing to everything just sort of happens in this group that I, you know, have mined over the years. And, uh, and, uh, it's a really fun thing with a show like that, because it's so much material and it's happening constantly. Like you have to have the right systems in place, or it just feels like you're like treading water constantly and it's insane. But, uh, but also just like becoming part of an institution like that is very crazy. Not only from like a logistical standpoint, wherein the show, you know, has been running on this, you know, this track for so long that like people are very grounded in their ways and this is what they do. But also like, I, I always say that like every year they have this gala where they, some famous person sings and they make, they raise a lot of money, but they show a video 
And to me, like, you know, when you're in something, you always forget what's going on around you. And if you watch this video of like the things that Sesame Street has accomplished in the past year or whatever. And, you know, a song I write one day, two weeks later, will be in Bangladesh in a different language and some kid will be singing it. And I'm getting letters from like all over the, the country. It's just, it's surreal. And it, it, it and I always forget I just forget the amount of impact both that I have musically speaking, but also that like the, the show has on me. You know, you don't, you, I, I bring people to the set and they like walk on the set and they're just like, how do you work here? Like I would just be, you know, and it's surreal. It's like, I always say that walking onto the set of Sesame street, it's like, um, like walking into the oval office. I've never been to the oval office, but I assume it's like that same, like take your breath the, away. The sort gravity of, of yeah. where you're at. Yeah. Cause everybody has, you know, like people have things in common. They pay taxes for the most part and they, they grew up on Sesame street, you know? And so like people have this idea of what this is and they go in and it always exceeds those expectations. So they're just sort of like standing there in a total haze. And it's very fun to watch that sort of thing. But anyway, I, you know, to this day, I still pinch myself every time I have to do something today. I had to, you know, write a song, uh, the monsters in the street to the tune of farmer in the Dell. That was today's epic yeah. composition. What, what was, I mean, you talk about how it, it had been treading water for a little bit, you know, until you came into it. But like the, the first school, the old school of Sesame Street, where were those musicians coming from? Did it come from like, were they studio guys? Were they old jazz heads? Like what was, how did, how did Sesame Street first start in terms of their music production? Well, it's interesting. It's interesting. To this day, Sesame Street, the band, the band that like is sort of like the Sesame Street band is a conglomerate of, of uh, musicians from all over the place. So as it exists now, the band is like the drummer from used to play Avenue Q and the trumpet player from the Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra and the bass, you know, so that kind of stuff. And then and then in, in the past, the initial band was uh, Bob Crenshaw was one of the initial guys. He was a, he's a famous uh, jazz bass player. And then a bunch and like, you know, and Joe Raposo, who was the initial head composer, also played in the band. And this I found out later I was doing a podcast. I do this podcast called Questlove Supreme with Questlove from the Roots. And we were um we were uh, interviewing Nile Rodgers, and it turns out that Nile Rodgers, the famous guitar playing Nile Rodgers, was yeah. was the first um, guitar sub on Sesame Street. So he, we talked about that forever. Like he, he, one of the guys was sick or something. The guitar player was sick, so Nile came in. He was like twenty one years old and just like sat down and shredded the guitar. And so like you know we have that weird sort of. And he was on the show recently, like a year or two ago, and so that was sort of this very full circle moment. But um, yeah, it's always been like Broadway pit guys, session guys. Like Lou Marini, who was in the initial Blues Brothers, a saxophone player, he used to be Hoots the Owl, and he used to play all the the saxophone stuff. Um, and then, you know, even today, so this this is my, one of my favorite stories, is my fourth grade music teacher who taught me how to play the clarinet and the saxophone as a kid now works for me on Sesame Street. He's the woodwind player in the band, because I thought I'd pay that forward, and he's awesome. And he comes in from Long Island. He still lives where I grew up. And he uh, comes in, you know, when we went to the studio, he'd come in and and uh, and, and record with all the guys. So, yeah. That's it's always amazing. a mixture. Yeah, and so, cool. I mean, without, without, you know, going into specifics, like in terms of the economics is, does the, the heritage and the reputation of the show allow you to get a quality of musicians that you might not be able to like otherwise with relation to, you know, pay scale and rates. Like, I mean, I imagine you have such a, a rich history of people that have worked on the show. It can't just be because they pay so well. Right. No. Well, the, the other great thing about Sesame Street is that it's like a regular job. And I think any musician in the world, whether they're busy or not, wants to have a regular job. So like when I first was putting the band together, I went out everywhere and I met all kinds of guys. And I wanted to, I feel like my 
one of my best assets as like a leader of things is to put the right guys into the room. And so with Sesame Street, it was not only finding the best players, but it was finding like guys that could hang out for like four hours every Tuesday for the entire year without wanting to kill each other. And we've been doing this for 10 years and it still works. So that's like a miracle. But, um, but the other thing about the Sesame Street band was also guys who could play anything because like we could sit there and we could go from like a bossa nova to a hip hop tune to a rock tune to a salsa thing. And they have to be able to play it all. And it has to happen quickly because we usually do like 40 cues a day or whatever it is. And so it's a lot of work and it needs to sort of move. So over the years, you sort of every guy has sort of found his niche and like we, we know how to support each other and make the thing work. But but yeah, the, from a, from an economic perspective, you, you want to have the Sesame Street gig. It pays very well and it's regular. And so besides like being a Broadway musician on like Hamilton, it's one of the best jobs for a musician in New York City also because no kids shows really have live bands at all. In fact, no shows at all really have live bands except for like you know, um, late night shows and stuff like that. So, yeah. So I'm curious about the, the leverage that Sesame street has in terms of getting its celebrity guests. Cause it seems like shows these days, it's just, it's this big publicity machine and it's this tug and pull between, you know, the heat of the show and the heat of the celebrity and, you know, who has more power. Mm-hmm. Where does Sesame street fall on that spectrum? Do you find most celebrities are honored and excited for the opportunity to go on Sesame street? Or is there a lot of cajoling that goes down? Um, I would say it's the former. It's a lot of people, either people who have kids or who, like I said, grew up on Sesame Street because they have that in common, are just like super into it. So celebrities, when they come on to, it's always, celebrities always want to be part of Sesame Street. They always want to, whether they have kids or not. And so it's, it's, it's more, it's more about what, what are they, what are we going to get them to do? It's not really about saying yes. It's about, hey, okay, great. Are you going to sing a song? Will you sing a song live? Do you want to do an old song? Do you want to write a new song? Do you want to dress up in a costume? Do you want to be on the thing? You know, like there's many, there's many different, you know, possibilities for a, for, for, for a celebrity, but at least musically speaking, everybody from like Harry Styles in one direction to Ed Sheeran to Bruno Mars to whomever are like super into it. And like, I've written songs for all of these people and they're just like, yeah, I'll sing that. Hell yeah. It sounds awesome. And it's also fun because, you know, I'll write a song and I think once Gwen Stefani said to me, Hey, can I put this on my next album? And I think she was, she was kidding, but like, I'm still like, just, thank you. That's very even nice. So. And so, yeah. I mean, do you, are a lot of those guests a product of, of your relationship within the, the musical community? Like do you pitch artists or how do you, how do they, how do they get on the show? I personally pitch some artists from time to time, but mostly it just comes through our bookers and things like that. Also like people who are New York based. And sometimes we go out to LA, people who are LA based and then people who are trying to promote something. And, you know, it depends. There's a lot of different uh, variables with that, but like, at least for me, I really wanted to have Jack Antonoff on the show. Cause I love him. I think he's one of the great producers. And so I went about it and I asked him and, and then, cause I knew him through a friend and he was like, hell yeah. And, da, da, da. and so then he was on the show and then, you know, just stuff like that. And Sarah Bareilles just recently was on the show and she's been on it a couple of times. We've worked together a bunch. So it, it, it's a combination of all of them. It's not, it's not so much me as it is. We have really great bookers and people just really want to be involved with Sesame street. It's like the, you know, it's like this great beacon of hope <laughs> for people these days. So, so, I mean, you mentioned, um, you know, quest love and I'm, I'm sure you're, you're tight with the guys in the roots and but their, their experience of creating musical content for Fallon must be totally different than yours in that you have a pretty strong mission statement at Sesame street that has to have this educational purpose. So, I mean, is there, how do, what's the relationship between the musical director and say the producer and educators and child psychologists? Like, how do you guys all collaborate? Is there conflict sometime between your tastes or objectives and what they need to accomplish? Absolutely. Because everybody in, in, their, in the best possible way has their own agenda. So the producers want the greatest thing. The 
you know, the, the educators want to make sure all the education is fulfilled. The, musically speaking, I want to like the longest possible musical moment ever. And I want music to be there all the time. And they, of course, don't, you know. So so it's a constant back and forth. I think, you know, what's interesting is is the curriculum and the production team are sort of run hand in hand. And so you have to so you have to please all of your masters at the show. And it's really hard because we, ve- you know, uh, we very rarely employ lyricists. Usually the lyricists are the are the book writers because they know the characters. and They know how it's done. Whereas like writing the music is a much easier thing for the most part. Although, you know, these days uh, I don't when I tell people when I get people to compose for the show. I, I always say, can you write like a, a song that you would write for for an adult just for a pop radio hit as opposed to writing like a kid song? Because once people hear kid song, they have this like certain idea of what that's supposed to be and how that's supposed to work so you know o- over the years we've, we've figured out a way to sort of sort of you know streamline that process and all that but um and that keeps it modern as well too so it's not just pigeonholed as children's music right because i think you know we, we get we get in trouble with with sort of like only you know making stuff too kitty that's what people have called it recently like it sounds too jingly and there's too many clock and spiels and things like that you know but i you know i think the the, the process of of pleasing the curriculum and the producers and all that it, it it's a challenge and that's what makes it most interesting i've also you know so many songs in the world have held notes and long ideas and stuff like that with sesame street every syllable is accounted for because you're trying to get across all this information and all this stuff that like it's very syllabic stuff that all goes all the way to the end of the line so you're not really like holding notes very long like you're trying to get out the most information so that's another extra challenge that like the music department sort of has um but I mean, the, the process, the way it works is I usually get a script that has lyrics in it. I assign it to someone or I write it myself. And then we get it back. We give it to the producers. They sort of go back and forth on it. Then they come back with any notes and I address them and then we record it and then we go. Like, that's sort of how it's done. And uh, it's been pretty successful thus far. And like these days after, after like I said, after about 10 years, like I kind of know what it's supposed to sound like and how it's supposed to live in the script. So it's easy to do that, you know? So it's, it's much easier to, much easier than it used to be when I was sort of guessing all the time. Well, it also seems like the the sensibilities and the maturity level of children have changed significantly since the early 70s, you know, in in that era of Sesame Street. And I mean, was that part of your ethos of how you wanted to update it? Because, you know, the kids, the kids that that heard Sesame Street songs from 1972 were probably not listening also to FM radio or jazz records or whatever. Whereas kids today are like very aware of what modern pop music sounds like, you know. Absolutely. And so what what I do is I play all my songs for my kids and uh, they're eight and 10, they're girls, eight and 10. If they like it, I always think that I'm probably on the right track and they're very honest. So, you know, they're the best litmus test there is. And they'll just say, this is terrible. Or if, if like, <laughs> if, you know, it's just terribly demeaning, but like an hour later, if my older daughter is singing it back, like I know that it's stuck and I know that it's like a sticky sort of melody. And I think that that's, that's, you know, that usually works. Like she hasn't led me wrong yet. Although, you know, what's so interesting about it is that taste is taste and, and and liking the music is all subjective anyway so like i might write a song that i think is fantastic my daughter might think it's fantastic but i'll play it for the producers and they hate it so it's even like even after this time it's still a bit of a juggling like to figure it out you know as much as i think it's a great song it might not be and it might not get across the information in a way that works and i think what we were talking about curriculum stuff before we do a lot of repetition and a lot of saying you know saying things over and over again because uh, after testing, we've learned that that's what kids, you know, that's how they soak up the most information. And so like, so like maybe I didn't repeat the chorus enough times, or maybe it wasn't sticky enough or whatever the heck it is. And so, you know, there's constantly that, that, um, the idea of what's age appropriate and what, what is, is it for a parent also, or is it just for the kid? And then if it's age appropriate, how sticky is it? And will a kid, cause the other thing that's interesting that Sesame Street does is they test everything. So I'll write a song and then they'll play it for kids in a testing, you know, environment. And then 
and then watch their you know reaction and so you, that's always a little stressful you know you see like well does a kid like the song is he singing it is he bopping his head is he dancing is he like is he distracted somewhere else is he focused like you know so you do that with focus groups with children yeah I'm not actually part of that, but I do sort of get the, you know, results by, uh, you know, they come to me and they say, well, this is this song did or did not do. And so we need to either do something similar to it or do it again or whatever it is. So, you know, a lot of times if you if you watch children's movies, like especially Pixar movies, they kind of operate on two different levels. There's a narrative for kids, but there's also a lot of these like inside jokes that are meant for adults to understand Absolutely. I would suspect that that's done for economic reasons. So, you know, you have to broaden the audience. You got to get adults interested as well. The the funding and economics of Sesame Street seem a little bit different. And I'm curious, like, there's still a lot of those inside jokes. Though. Like, I was watching the other day, and there was an episode of, uh, it was chickens playing on the back of a truck with long red hair, and the name of the group was Florence and the Egg Makers, like, mm-hmm. obviously a Florence and the Machine reference. That wasn't meant to make four-year-olds laugh. Like, how how do those inside jokes make it into, and what's the, what's the, what's the strategy behind that? I think... I think, you know, for a long time and until today, uh, Sesame Street's supposed to be a, you know, show that kids watch with their parents. Because if you're three, you're probably watching a show with your parents because your parent is trying to make sure that you don't bump your head on the table or whatever it is. And so, so the idea was let's have the kids learn, but at least the parents aren't like totally bored out of their minds. Cause I think like you'll watch a lot of other cartoon based shows these days and it's mind numbing and at least for me. And so, so, you know, those jokes and like the songs and like using uh, musical artists of the day is just was a was a way to to sort of figure out if we could you know play to both parent and child and the jokes you know there used to be more in the past we used to do like parodies we had orange is the new snack and That's like so um uh lord of the rings stuff and like all kind or lord of the chairs we had a thing and they played musical chairs you know stuff like that and so, so oh and, and true mud was like a true blood thing that we did a few years ago so anyway um yeah, it was just to like, you know, be engaging to a parent as well so that the parent actually wanted to sit and watch the show with their kids. So we were doing, you know, on two fronts, we were having a parent enjoy their kid learning and having a parent just enjoy themselves at the same time. And I think Sesame Street may be the only show in the history of the world that happens to be able to do that and do it in some amount of success, which is just, you know, seems crazy, but that's always been the mission. So it's so essentially it's the same strategy as why feature films do it just to kind of yeah. engage parents and kids at the same time. Absolutely. Um, so it's funny. So you and I, we actually met in a very funny way. Um, so a lot, like a lot of kids from my generation, I grew up watching Saturday morning cartoons and I just have such a fond sensibility for, for catchy jingles, like especially serial commercials. And uh-huh. so when my, when my son was born, I was like, I want to just start some writing some fun songs. And so I collaborated with a friend of mine and we put together a couple of kids songs and through the power of the internet, I was able to reach out to you and you were incredibly gracious and, mm-hmm. you know, you wrote me back and, you know, gave me some input. And I, I guess my question is like, are there other me's? What are some of the most ridiculous or noteworthy pitches that you've gotten from, from outside sources? <laughs> you know, I get them all the time. And you know, I, when I first started working in kids music, there's like a, uh, uh, a festival called Kindy Fest, which is like a bunch of people. And then this is not derogatory anyway. I call it dads with guitars, which is like when your son is born, you're like, I'm going to be a musician. So you pick up the guitar yeah. and you start playing. And you're like, maybe you learned how to play the guitar when you were like 10 years old. And all of a sudden you picked it up again because you want to do the right thing for your kid. I was also that parent just for the record. I just have a much bigger, you know, canvas to paint with as it were. But, um, yeah, I, so, so those dads and all these other people from this festival, they said, I get sent songs a lot. And, and, and sometimes I actually will go searching for people because I feel like my writing staff, I, I bring on more 
a few people a year, but I like to keep it diverse and interesting. And so like, I didn't have any women on my staff. So I hired a bunch of women and blah, 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 blah. And so some of the songs are terrible. Like, let's be honest. And some of them are really fantastic. The, the interesting thing is, is like, I'm not actually supposed to listen to, to stuff that's um, unsolicited because they can be like a whole thing. Like I copied someone's song if I heard it and da, 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 da. And so there's like, there's like that whole legal side of it for sure. Um, and then, you know, people be like, Hey, one guy wrote like, hey, I know how to play all my major and my minor scales. Can I be in the band? And so our, the, whole, <laughs> the whole band thought that was really hilarious. And so like, oh, major and minor scales, you know, and like these days, because of social media, you can be out there. People can find you. And so like, you know, I, I get, you know, I get uh, the other thing I get pitched for, which is very grateful, is people want like the sheet music to songs from Sesame Street that they love. Some girl wanted to sing one of my songs at like her communion. So we got her the music so she could sing it like that part of it's really cool, too. Um but submission wise, it's tough. And like, sometimes I actually like will go on, like, I will see things on my Facebook feed or my Instagram feed be like, Ooh, and then I'll research the person and then I'll get in touch with them. Sometimes I do that. It just depends on like what I'm looking for or what I like that day. So it's funny you mentioned that. So I picked up, uh, at a, at a used bookstore, I got this great find a couple years ago and I think it was from the Columbia record club. It was like a five LP set of, it was called the, uh, Sesame street music treasury. And it was like mm-hmm. in pristine condition. And it just has this amazing archive of five albums of Sesame street music. And I've tried to find it on discogs and like, I can't find any reference to it. So it's either completely worthless or priceless. <laughs> like I can't, find, are you familiar with that? Do you know what I'm I mean? I'm not a lot of people. So Questlove, as I was saying before, is like a big record collector. He has all all of the Sesame Street stuff. So he would be a good. I can ask him about that. Here, let me write it down. What's it called again? It's called the Sesame Street Treasury. Yeah. And I think it was a Columbia House project. Um, so it's like a it's a box set with five LPs of all, all right. Sesame Street stuff. I will get you some more information. Um, so, so yeah, that stuff is everywhere. Like Sesame street went through uh, like a seventies from the seventies into the eighties where they were just making stuff all the time. And we have archives of all that stuff and dats and old reel to reels. There was a time where I wanted to get the multi-tracks to everything. So I was recalling reels from our archive, which is in Newark <laughs> and they would come and bring me just like boxes of reels. And I work at a studio that has, you know, reel to reel machines. So we would put everything up on the reel to reel just to like, listen to it. And we'd have like these multi-tracks of like the original, like Toots Thielman playing the original harmonica thing on the thing, you know, and then we would, we would digitize all of it and then like sort of just figure out what we could do with it. Like crazy stuff like that, that we happen to, that still exists and, and is there. It's just sort of hard to, you know, you have to know what you're looking for because there's a lot of it. And, uh, and yeah, and and the and all the vinyl stuff and all of it is all all exists in some form somewhere. It's just it's it's, it's locating it and knowing where it is. Um, and um, so I'm curious about so you know Sesame Street in terms of it's always been a very progressive show, but not political. But mm-hmm. you know, in this in this time that we live in such a divisive time, have you pitched any projects or worked on anything that got a little blowback in terms of it might have had been perceived as as too forward or too political or just it didn't it kind of struck somebody the wrong way is there any internal conflicts that you come across in terms of the content of the show i don't think there's internal conflicts but i think you'd be surprised as to what gets blowback and what doesn't i think some things that if you're on one of the coasts just seems like sort of everyday fair might not be so cool in the middle of the country so we get letters and stuff all the time like why are you trying to teach my child this how dare you stuff like that um which like when we were creating, like you would never think would get that sort of reaction. And all of a sudden it's like, Oh, that's insane. That that's could be what it is internally. Like we, we, we've, we've teamed up with CNN a lot recently. We've done about stuff about COVID. We have a racism special that's coming out really soon. That's really great. I I mean, we're, 
Sesame Street is still able to stand on the forefront of all of this stuff, which is unbelievable to me after 50 years that they can still do that. And so I think, you know, I think internally everybody has opinions and everybody, you know, wants to quote unquote do the right thing. And I think every day people are having discussions within Sesame Street about what the right thing to do is. But like the political, as you know, the political climate now is so varied and crazy. It's sort of hard to predict and hard to predict the effect of our material and our content will be. So, you know, we, we're, we're cautious, but we're, you know, also trying to lead, I think at the same time. And, and it's, it's fun to be at a place not fun. It's, it's, uh, it's important and it's heavy and it has gravitas to be at a place that sort of has people's ear. You know, it's like, it's like if you asked uh, any parent what's the top three children's shows, Sesame Street would certainly be one of them. So we still, after 50 years, have this grasp of what people do. And like we will make something and it will be in the news the next day, which is, you know, which is pretty insane, uh, you know, after again, after all that time. But also it's like we're making things that are important to society and that are important for people to know. And so uh, having that amount of effect is, is particularly noteworthy. And it seems like you really uh, you recognize the responsibility that you have. By having yes. the access to those children's minds. Yeah. I, I always say that, like, there's ever a time where I neglect, if I, if I take that responsibility for granted, then I need to find another job. I think this job is super important. And if I slack on it, it always makes me feel bad. And I, it doesn't happen that often. But there are times where I'm just like, what? what? No, no, no. Like, you have to always strive for the best thing because this is such a high level and you need to keep it there. Or you're just not doing the right thing. And so that's, yeah, I, I, I deal with that sometimes. Well, I mean, because it seems like in, a, in, a, in a, an era where the trust in science has been completely eroded and corrupted. You know, my question to you is, are math and numbers just a liberal hoax? Can we trust Count Von Count? <laughs> is, he just, <laughs> is he just an elitist that inherited his father's royal title? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a, it's, it's an interesting point you make. He does have a legit title. I, you know, I think the funny thing about, about Sesame Street is like, it, it's, it's whether, whether his name is the Count, they're all they all live in this, the Muppets particularly, all live in this nebula arena, right? Where it's like, they could be this, or they could be that, or they couldn't, or they could. And I think that that's sort of been the awesome thing about Sesame Street is you're able to make, you're able to say things about society, but like at the end of the day, they're, they're, they're puppets in a, in a, in, you know, in a block of Brooklyn or wherever they are. And, uh, and um, they're everybody's friends. And they're, you know, as the song says, they're, they're just people in your neighborhood. And so, some people in your neighborhood have these ideas. Some people in your neighborhood have those ideas. But either way, they're all sort of this community. And I think that's the interesting part is we get to have all of those things. We don't, it, it, you know, it doesn't need to be one particular political political and or sociological view doesn't need to be the forefront. It sort of is, it's everything. And I think that that's where we're most successful in not leaning too hard one way or another. Uh, it's an important mission you guys accomplished too. It's really well done. Well done. Well done. I always like to end this podcast by asking the guests to plug something that they feel hasn't gotten enough attention lately, whether it's like a book or a movie or maybe a musical artist you've worked with. Like, do you have somebody that's been inspiring you lately that you want to shine a little attention on? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, um, I don't know. Uh, I do. I have worked with this guy. His name is Jawan Crawley. He's a he's a singer. He's on Broadway. He played um, he played uh, the genie in Aladdin, and he's very very talented. And check him out. You can, it's, it's, I think it's under his name C R A W L E Y, and he writes great songs. And he's an unbelievable like seventeen octave voice, and he's really fun to listen to. So check him out. Um, and anything contemporary, like you know, what do you listen to on your free time? Like are, people, <laughs> people ask me that all the time. I, I I have this weird thing where like I'm so I'm in my studio right now, right? And so I'm surrounded by speakers and keyboards and all this crap. And so I, you know, I, I'm in music almost all day long. So when I'm not listening, when I'm not working and I'm like driving my kids' places and stuff, I listen to CNN 
because I just don't want to hear music. And the problem with that is my kids want to listen to like top 40 hits. So like, that's how also, that's how I know a song is good is my, my daughters are on TikTok. And so they're like, well, dad, this is the TikTok song now. And so I'm like, oh, cool. So like, I have some sort of reverence for like what is going on in the world. And I don't feel like such an old man. Right. But like, but, and so they give me like all the current events. Um, uh, and so I know all of those songs too, but like for the most part, I try to like just focus and like listen to the news. And the good part about it is like anywhere you go in New York is one hour. And so the CNN news cycle is one hour. So if you listen to it for one hour, then you can turn it off and then you can have silence. You can have whatever you want, but like at least for an hour, you can kind of figure out what's going on and then sort of move on with your day. Sounds good. Well, Bill, thanks so much for taking the time out. And um, I mean, I know the, the show that you work on is it's so dear to so many people's hearts. And then also make sure you check out we are freestyle love supreme. It's a terrific movie about friendship and family, and um, I just think we need we need some uplifting material right now. And that's a, a very proud of you guys. You guys did a great Absolutely. job. Absolutely, thank you so cool. much. Really appreciate it. Cheers. Have a great one, man. All right, buddy. Take it easy. Bye. This episode of the plug was produced by Bucci with audio engineering and original music by Peter Buckingham. Thanks for listening, and a huge thanks to today's guests for dropping in. If you like this episode, hit subscribe and be sure to tune in for future conversations.